0: Welcome back, our fellow patriots, to the Patriot Lessons American History and Civics podcast. We have finished our deep dive into the Declaration of Independence, taken a quick detour to explore 9-11, and now we begin our approach to the Constitution. Now, when I say approach, I mean that we need to set the stage for the Constitution. We did not declare independence in 1776 and then immediately adopt the Constitution. To the contrary, the Constitution was not even drafted until 1787 and not ratified until 1788. In the interregnum, the Congress and states banded together to win the American Revolution through the Continental Congress and then the Articles of Confederation. After our victory against the English Empire, the weaknesses of the Articles became exposed. When those weaknesses could no longer be brushed off, the foundation was laid for drafting and ratifying the Constitution. As we stated many moons ago, you cannot really understand America and the Constitution without understanding the Declaration of Independence. In a parallel fashion, you can't really understand America and the Constitution without understanding the Articles and their shortfalls. As such, in this episode, we will explore the drafting and ratification of the Articles of Confederation. Next episode, we will review its text and its many remarkable achievements, which have been nearly forgotten today. When I say we, I'm joined by Mike Gerard and bombastic Brent Bassett. We will let Mike Gerard kick us off.
1: Thanks, Judge. Before I start off, we just want to give an enormous thank you to Sheila Guerin for her support. It really does mean a great deal. Thank you, Sheila. Now, you may remember from prior episodes that the Second Continental Congress approved John Adams' resolutions of May 1776 that recommended that each state establish its own revolutionary government that stood independent of the empire. John Adams thought the revolution was almost accomplished there, but most others understood that it would take a Continental-wide action to really establish a true break of independence from the British Empire. To effectuate that break, the Second Continental Congress approved Richard Henry Lee's Resolution for Independence on July 2nd and the Declaration of Independence on July 4th of 1776. And immediately, there arose a tremendous issue. Combined with the May 1776 resolutions, the July Resolution and Declaration had just severed ties between all of the former colonies and the English Empire. The newly independent states were just that, newly independent states. And that was nothing approaching a national government. True, the states had been operating together cooperatively to toss off the yoke of British tyranny and to coordinate the American Revolution. There was even a unified continental army led by George Washington. Nevertheless, most of the troops in the field at any given time were often composed of independent state-based militia troops. The states were all sovereign, free countries, Often disputes arose between the Congress and the states in such vital areas as military offensives, supplies, and command and control of operations. And worse, in theory, any of the states could betray their fellow states by suing for peace and abandoning the American Revolution at any time. The Second Continental Congress had no real legal authority over the states, because of the exigencies of the circumstances and fighting a united revolutionary war, the states tended to follow the lead of the Congress. But there was little that Congress could do to coerce the states into following its lead. In the past, there had been some false starts about establishing a continental-based government. But with independence, it was absolutely essential. The Patriots understood that they would have little chance at victory if the states did not unify to fight the greatest empire on earth. The old adage, united we stand, divided we fall, was definitely perceived as the cruel reality. Scholars attribute this saying to the ancient Greek Aesop, you know, of Aesop's fables in The Four Oxen and the Lion, as well as in The Bundle of Sticks. In the Bible, Mark chapter 3, verse 23 through 26, provides a similar maxim.
2: So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself, and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come.
1: A similar sentiment is attributed to Jesus in Matthew chapter 12, verse 24 to 25.
2: And Jesus knew their thoughts, and said unto them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself shall not stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How shall then his kingdom stand?
1: Another very similar passage also appears in Luke. As we've learned, the Founding Fathers were well acquainted with the Bible, as well as ancient and British history. They understood that a divided house would not stand against British tyranny. As we've discussed in detail in prior episodes— Virginia's Richard Henry Lee moved on June 7, 1776 that the colonies become independent. But that was not all he recommended. He, Samuel Adams, John Adams, and the rest of the Second Continental Congress realized that with independence came conjoined needs that must be immediately resolved to ensure the House remained united. In addition to independence, Lee moved that the newly independent states, one, together establish foreign alliances, and two, establish a plan of confederation of the new states. In particular, with regards to confederation, the resolution provided
0: that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation.
1: Like the Declaration, the resolution to establish a plan of confederation was tabled until the Second Continental Congress was assured that the states would approve the resolutions. On June 11, 1776, the Congress approved the creation of three committees to address the three components of Lee's resolution, including formulating a plan of confederation. The next day, the members of the three committees were appointed. We've already learned quite a bit about the committee dedicated to drafting the Declaration of Independence. Now, it's time to turn to the one dedicated to creating a plan of confederation. Unlike the two committees involving the Declaration of Independence and establishing foreign relations, each of which had only five members, the committee to address confederation had 13 members, one member from each colony. This makes sense. If you're asking 13 newly independent states to establish a confederation, you best have each state involved. The 13 members
2: were… Josiah Bartlett of New Hampshire Samuel Adams of Massachusetts Stephen Hopkins of Rhode Island Roger Sherman of Connecticut Robert Livingston of New York A player to be named later of New Jersey John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, Thomas McKean of Delaware, Thomas Stone of Maryland, Thomas Nelson of Virginia, Joseph Hughes of North Carolina, Edward Rutledge of South Carolina, and Button Gwinnett of Georgia.
1: John Dickinson, the delegate from Pennsylvania, chaired the committee. He also became the principal architect of the initial and final plan. The committee's first draft was presented to Congress on July 12, 1776. Some historians like to say that this was the fourth draft of the Articles. History.com, for example, posits,
2: Altogether, six drafts of the Articles were prepared before Congress settled on a final version in 1777. Benjamin Franklin wrote the first and presented it to Congress in July, 1775. It was never formally considered. Later in the year, Silas Dean, a delegate from Connecticut, offered one of his own, which was followed later still by a draft from the Connecticut delegation, probably a revision of Dean's. None of these drafts contributed significantly to the fourth version written by John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, the text that, after much revision, provided the basis for the articles approved by Congress.
0: Unlike the historians at com, we tend to think that Dickinson's draft that was presented to Congress on July 12th was truly the first draft of the articles. After all, Franklin's, Dean's, and the Connecticut delegation's drafts were not authorized by Congress or even considered by it. Dickinson's draft, on the other hand, was the product of a committee established by the Second Continental Congress, and Dickinson was the chair of that committee. The first draft was presented to Congress on July 12th. The record is unclear whether changes were made then or whether John Dickinson presented it with some previously made, handwritten edits. The congressional record printed the text of the draft with changes marked up by Dickinson. Since the document was originally presented in Dickinson's handwriting, it is hard to know if the changes were made because Congress suggested them or they were last-minute changes that Dickinson made before he presented the draft. Irrespective of that detail, after the end of the debate on July 12th, 80 copies of the revised version were ordered to be printed for distribution to the members of Congress. Secrecy prevailed. Congress passed a resolution forbidding any member of Congress or the printer from sharing the draft with anyone else. The draft sparked profound deliberation. Debate on the articles continued throughout the summer. On July 20th of 1776, a dramatically revised version was produced and ordered printed. Again, only 80 copies were authorized to be printed, with the same restrictions on distribution as were imposed on the July 12th version. Although finalizing the articles was essential, it was slow work. This was so for two major reasons. First, there were many critical issues that needed to be addressed. For example, there was this little thing called the war for independence. If the Congress lost the war, it wouldn't matter a whit what the governance plan was. The Congress was simply swamped with competing demands such as procuring arms and supplies for the army coordinating war strategy, appointing officers, mustering defenses, embarking on diplomatic missions, considering prisoner exchanges, determining how to address abandoned and captured British and Loyalist property, requesting and collecting money and supplies, issuing proclamations, coordinating strategies and tactics with the states, and on and on.
1: For example, On the second major day of the debate on the Articles, July 23, 1776, the Congressional record reveals that Congress reviewed letters of correspondence from George Washington, Governor Cook, and Brigadier H. Mercer. Congress referred the Washington letter to the Board of War. The letter from Mercer was read to Congress and then referred to the Board of War, and they determined to publish a report on the committee on the cartel entered into between Brigadier General Arnold and Captain Foster and the accompanying resolutions be published. They also resolved to advance $20 to Isaac Manns, a wounded soldier, and sent him to the general hospital. They approved of George Washington's prior actions and resolved that they gave him no specific orders but expressed a desire about how to handle troops stationed in New York. They appointed two officers, considered a report of the Committee of Claims about payments that were due for a variety of expenditures and approved the same, then authorized the mustering of troops in Pennsylvania and the payment of the same, and they appointed Congressman George Clymer to the Board of Treasury. Then they resolved itself into a Committee of the Whole, debated the Articles of Confederation, and then tabled the measure for additional revisions the next day. Congress then returned to regular order, considering a petition of Chester County, Pennsylvania, for the release of a soldier to return home, which they granted. They considered petitions for Canadians, which was referred to the Canada Committee, and they approved the Marine Committee's recommendation that Richard Palms be appointed Captain of the Marines. That is all.
2: In the month of July, 1776, The Congress addressed the draft of the Articles of Confederation on July 12th, July 23rd, July 24th, July 25th, July 26th, July 29th, July 30th, and July 31st. They didn't discuss it on July 27th and 28th because Congress did not meet at all. Unfortunately, the Journal of the Proceedings is very perfunctory, usually simply stating that Congress resolved itself into a committee of the whole for the purpose of considering the Articles of Confederation and agreeing that since the committee had not come to a conclusion, it desired leave to further consider the Articles of Confederation and Congress concurred to address the document again the next day.
0: When the Constitutional Convention met several years later, James Madison took copious notes of the debates. But Madison was not a member of the Second Continental Congress when the Articles of Confederation were being debated. The historical record, therefore, is very scant. Despite this thin historical record, there is no question that there were very difficult issues about how to organize the Confederacy. Which is the second reason the work on the Articles was so slow. The Articles needed to muster approval from 13. Independent, very different states. Nothing like it had really ever been tried in human history. There was no king or tyrant or army to impose or coerce the plan on the states. They had to be persuaded to join. And critical issues abounded. For example, representation within the Congress. Who would be represented? People? States? Property? Something else? And how would they be represented? Would there be an executive or a judiciary what authority would Congress have? Would there be taxing authority, the ability to make treaties? How about money? Trade regulations, how to address border disputes, how would the military be organized and managed, foreign relations, internal improvements like bridges, roads, canals? What about territories in the West that have been claimed by various states? Thankfully, the historical record is not entirely lost. Although Thomas Jefferson was no James Madison in connection with recording vital debates, he did preserve some recollection of the issues that vexed the Congress. Jefferson wrote that two issues were particularly troublesome.
1: How much money each state should furnish to the common treasury and the manner of voting in Congress.
0: The original draft required contributions from each state based on the population of all inhabitants of every age, sex, and quality, except Native Americans not paying taxes. A vigorous debate erupted regarding whether the Congress should only represent white inhabitants as opposed to including enslaved persons and free African Americans. Various other approaches were suggested and debated, including counting enslaved persons as half of a free man and assessing representation based on wealth, for example, the value of land and homes. Another key issue was how the Congress would be formed, recognizing that each independent state would be treated as its own sovereign, and following the practice of the Second Continental Congress had followed up to that point, Dickinson's original draft simply provided that each state would have one vote, regardless of its size or population. As reported by Jefferson, Congressman Samuel Chase reflected,
1: This article was the most likely to divide us of any one proposed in the draft, then under consideration. That the larger colonies had threatened they would not confederate at all if their weight in Congress should not be equal to the numbers of people they added to the Confederacy, while the smaller ones declared against a union if they did not retain an equal voice for the protection of their rights. That it was of utmost consequence to bring the parties together, as should we sever from each other. Either no foreign power will ally with us at all, or the different states will form different alliances and thus increase the horrors of those scenes of civil war and bloodshed which in such a state of separation and independence would render us a miserable people. That our importance, our interests, our peace required that we should confederate, and that mutual sacrifices should be made to effectuate a compromise Of this difficult question. I am of the opinion the smaller colonies would lose their rights if they were not in some instances allowed an equal vote, and therefore a discrimination should take place among the questions would be secured in all questions concerning life or liberty, and the greater ones in all respecting property. Therefore, I propose that in votes relating to money, the vote of each colony should be proportioned to the number of its inhabitants.
0: Jefferson reported that Benjamin Franklin rejected Chase's argument and suggested that all decisions should be done proportionally by population. In fact, he thought Congress was mistaken when it originally agreed to vote by state, as was still the current practice. But this ran right into the jaws of the whole conception of a confederacy and a union of states. Dr. Witherspoon countered Franklin.
2: I oppose. Every alteration of the article. All men admit that a confederacy is necessary. Should the idea get abroad that there is likely to be no union among us, it will damp the minds of the people, diminish the glory of our struggle, and lessen its importance, because it will open to our view future prospects of war and dissension among ourselves. If an equal vote be refused, the smaller states will become vassals to the larger, and all experience has shown that the vassals and subjects of free states are the most enslaved. Instance the Helots of Sparta and the provinces of Rome. Foreign powers discovering this blemish would make it a handle for disengaging the smaller states from so unequal a confederacy, that the colonies should in fact be considered as individuals, and that as such, in all disputes, they should have an equal vote, that they are now collected as individuals, making a bargain with each other, and of course, had a right to vote as individuals. In the East India Company, they voted by persons, and not by their proportion of stock, that the Belgic Confederacy voted by provinces, that in questions of war the smaller states were as much interested as the larger, and therefore should vote equally, and indeed, that the larger states were more likely to bring war on the Confederacy in proportion as their frontier Was more extensive. Nothing relating to individuals could ever come before Congress. Nothing but would respect colonies. We must distinguish between an incorporating and a federal union.
0: John Adams weighed in heavily on behalf of voting in proportion to population and not giving each state an equal voice. We stand here as representatives of the people, that in some states the people are many, in others they are few, that therefore their vote here should be proportioned to the numbers from whom it comes. Reason, justice, and equity never had weight enough on the face of the earth to govern the councils of men. It is interest alone which does it, and it is interest alone which can be trusted, that therefore the interest within doors should be the mathematical representatives of the interest without doors. Does the individuality of a colony increase its wealth or numbers? If it does, pay equally. If it does not add weight in the scale of Confederacy, it cannot add to their rights, nor weight in argument. A has 50 pounds. B, 500 pounds. C, 1,000 pounds. In partnership. Is it just that they should equally dispose of the monies of the partnership? It has been said we are independent individuals making a bargain together. The question is not what we are now, but what we ought to be when our bargain shall be made. The Confederacy is to make us one individual only. It is to form us, like separate parcels of metal, into one common mass. We shall no longer retain our individual, separate individuality, but become a single individual as to all questions submitted to the Confederacy. Therefore, all these reasons which prove the justice and expediency of equal representation in other assemblies hold good here. It has been objected that a proportional vote will endanger the smaller states. We answer that an equal vote will endanger the larger. Virginia, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts are the three greater colonies. Consider the distance, the difference of produce, of interest, and of manners, and it is apparent that they can never have an interest or inclination to combine for the oppression of the smaller. That the smaller will naturally divide on all questions with the larger.
2: Several other eminent founding fathers including Dr. Benjamin Rush and James Wilson, supported voting in proportion to population, but others, like Stephen Hopkins, sided with the idea of one state, one vote. These and other issues delayed final consideration of the plan of confederation. Finally, in October of 1777, the final version was ready for a vote. While Congress debated The British had occupied Philadelphia, and the Congress fled the Capitol on September 17, 1777, first to Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and then to York, Pennsylvania. September 17 would ironically become the day on which the Constitution would be signed by the Constitutional Convention. That's Constitution Day, and the ending anchor date for Patriot Week. This flight from Philadelphia gave a greater sense of urgency to wrap up the debate and finalize the Plan of Confederation. On November 15, 1777, Congress approved the document.
1: But that was just the beginning of the process. Congress had no power to require any of the states to approve the document. Quite the opposite, to become binding, all the states needed to ratify the document. Virginia wasted no time. It ratified the Articles a month later on December 16, 1777. On February 5, 1778, South Carolina became the second ratifier, and later that month, New York, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and Georgia all followed suit. The next month, New Hampshire, Pennsylvania, and Massachusetts joined in. North Carolina joined the bandwagon in April 1778. 10 of the 13 states had ratified the document in six months. And then it took another six months until New Jersey ratified on November 19, 1778. 11 of 13, almost there. Three months later, Delaware ratified on February first, 1779. And then, well, and then there was a long wait. Maryland was the last holdout. It refused to ratify in 1779, but surely it would ratify in 1780. eh? Not so. Maryland did not gain popularity and fame from its intransigence. To the contrary, some of the ratifying states passed resolutions urging that the Articles take effect without Maryland. Others, however, refused to do so, understanding that unity presented the best chance of winning the American Revolution. Maryland was standing firm based on the issue of Western lands. At the time, several states, most importantly Virginia, had claimed that they owned all the unsettled land to the west of their borders. Virginia was basically arguing its territory could stretch to the Pacific Ocean. Several of the states that had no such grandiose land claims vehemently objected to those land grabs. They feared that if such claims were recognized, that over time, states like Virginia would dwarf the other states and dominate the political and economic affairs of the country. Thomas Jefferson and others worked to have these states relinquish their land claims, and Maryland's main point of contention began to crumble. About the same time in 1780, British unleashed attacks on the coast of Maryland in the Chesapeake Bay. By this time, the French Navy was allied with the Americans, and Maryland requested the French to drive off or otherwise protect Maryland. French Minister Anne-César de la Luzerne kindly wrote the Maryland government that French Admiral de Touche would do attempt to do so, but La Luzerne also sharply pressed Maryland to ratify the Articles. La Luzerne believed the Articles of Confederation were important to strengthening his American allies and not so subtly leveraged Maryland's military necessity to make the point. With the land issue resolved in its favor and its coast under British threat, Maryland finally ratified the Articles on February 2, 1781. That decision was communicated to Congress on February 12. And on noon, on March 1st, 1781, Maryland's two delegates to Congress signed the document, and voila! A new government was born. Unlike the Declaration of Independence, in which most, but by no means all, of the delegates signed the document on August 2nd, 1776, and like the Constitution, where most of the delegates signed the document on September 17th, 1787, the articles were signed over time. As each state ratified the governing charter. On July 9th, 1788, the document was ready for signature. Congressmen from the ratifying states began to sign the document from that time forward. Now, of course, as congressmen often changed, many of the signers were actually uninvolved in the drafting and the approval of the document. The reality was that although the Articles seemed to take forever to be ratified, the Congress and states acted like it had been in effect once Congress adopted it. It may not have been legally binding until 1781, but it provided the framework for the operation of the Confederation beginning in 1777. As we'll learn next episode, by adopting the Articles of Confederation, America took a revolutionary step in world history.
0: Some key takeaways from this episode. After independence was approved, the Congress realized that they needed to create a Confederacy to successfully defend American independence. On July 12, 1776, a committee was established to draft a plan of Confederacy with one member from each independent state with John Dickinson as its chair. After over a year of debate, Congress approved the Articles of Confederation, It took more than three years to ratify the articles, mostly because Maryland wanted to lay to rest the issue of how Western territories would be addressed in the future. Please join us next time when we review the text of the Articles of Confederation and its many accomplishments. I am Oakland County Circuit Court Judge Michael Warren and author of America's Survival Guide. Our other two terrific patriot narrators are Mike Gerard Skanechny, who is our sign designer and the host of his own unique podcast, Be Reasonable with Mike Gerard, and bombastic Brent Bassett. Proud father, I mean actually proud father, of an amazing young patriot and several patriotic hounds. This podcast is produced by Patriot Week. Please visit Patriot Week's website at patriotweek.org to learn more about our first principles, key documents and speeches, patriots, and flags. Our fellow patriots, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless you, and God bless America.
1: Thank you, our fellow patriots, for listening. Please subscribe to our podcast and rate us. That is, if you're going to give us those five golden stars, we can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and many other platforms. You can also find much more at patriotweek.org, which includes videos, lesson plans, TV episodes, and many other goodies. Patriot Week is celebrated every year from September 11th, the anniversary of the terrorist attacks, through September 17th, the anniversary of the signing of the Constitution. It has been recognized by the U.S. Senate and many states. Patriot Week was started by then-10-year-old Leah Warren when she pounded on the table and demanded a new celebration of America. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and on Instagram, or reach out directly at mwarren at patriotweek.org. Also consider Judge Warren's book, America's Survival Guide, How to Stop America's Impending Suicide by Reclaiming Our First Principles and History, by visiting americasurvivalguide.com, Amazon, or any other online retailer. Until next time, God bless you and God bless America.